Hello, and a very warm welcome to this week's episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. I am delighted to be joined on the podcast by Scott Mackin, a managing partner at Denham Capital, who leads the firm's sustainable infrastructure team. Mackin brings over 25 years of experience to Denham and is a member of the Investment Committee and Valuation Committee. On this week's podcast, he is going to be discussing Denham's sustainable infrastructure debt platform with me, amongst many other interesting topics. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So if I just kick the discussion off with a fairly sort of general background question, I mean, what motivated the launch of Denham Capital's sustainable infrastructure debt platform? Well, you know, as you are aware, we've been on the equity side of this business now for a number of years, having uh, done, I'd say, pretty much a number of firsts in the, uh, particularly in the renewable space, uh, with largest projects in Italy and Australia a couple times and in Latin America, and you know, having been sort of at the forefront, um, and we think that operational experience and and understanding of what it means to be a sponsor. Um, should translate well in terms of putting together a debt platform. And there's this need for insurance companies and other large institutional investors to match long dated liabilities with um, assets that have that sort of long dated life, right? And most of the renewable and and other energy transition assets are gonna have 20, 30 years minimum of uh, of useful life. And the banks uh, who do a great job sort of putting together deals uh, tend to be you know, the max five to seven year um, in terms of the type of exposure that that they uh, they can uh, can afford to have, and often want less. And so we thought there was this wide open space that's getting wider because of the need uh, for energy transition, the need to get to to net zero by 2050. Which, as as you're probably aware, there were two sort of clarion calls um, this year. One was the UN's uh, um, International Panel on Climate Change, which concluded what what scientists have said for years that it's it's uh, it's very clear, it's unequivocal, indeed, that human activity is causing climate change, and that we're seeing the impacts today. And then the International Energy Agency, which um, was formed by the oil producing nations to look at the security of supply decades ago, and they came out and essentially said that the emergency is on us at this point. There's no more fundamental uh, change that is required than the changes that are required for us uh, right now with respect to energy transition. So this means that there's you know upwards of 150 trillion <clears throat> of investment that needs to happen um, over uh, these next 30 years. Much of it on us now. I mean, this is not backdated. Um, you may have seen there's a group of insurance companies uh, that uh, and pension funds uh, from across the world that have formed a seven trillion dollar AUM alliance for climate change that it has pressed for aggressive goals just by 2025 in terms of taking CO2 out. So you have this large confluence of all of these things, and we thought it was timely for us to to get on the debt side as well as continue obviously what we've been doing on the equity side. Thanks, Scott. That all sounds very interesting and a very innovative kind of platform. I'm interested, I mean, you mentioned the banks very briefly and their kind of role in infrastructure investment and the kind of 
time or tenor indeed of the investments. Um, I mean, will the sustainable infrastructure debt platform aim to invest in bank-led sectors or sectors underserved by traditional project finance bank debt? I mean, I know that's not necessarily an either or, but I'm very interested to hear what your views are on that. Yeah, I think, you know, predominantly coming out of the box, we're going to be investment grade uh, with some sub-investment grade. And then over time, that uh, mix will probably get more and more non-investment grade. So when you think about investment grade, we will be you know, tackling in many respects the same markets as the banks are, are tackling. Now, they don't always go ahead and, and get investment grade ratings, but but it is investment grade paper uh, in essence for, for much of what they do uh, in this field. <clears throat> and there, I think um, we both can compete in some respects, but also in, in large respects serve as a complement because of that tenor that I'm talking about. And so, for example, a lot of lenders, a home run for them is to do you know, sort of construction bridge financing and have a takeout on the back end. And uh, having a, a takeout that has is long tenored uh, makes everybody happy. Um, so I think, you know, that is a, is a, you know, huge sort of benefit for everybody involved. But I think, you know, given our experience as a sponsor and there's a, there's a degree of sophistication that's required uh, across the energy transition world today. You know, it used to be, that every deal was one um, power purchase agreement, one PPA, uh, and it uh, you know you ended your term of your debt two or three years short of when that termed out, and it was a 20-year PPA, and um, it was all take or pay, and life was simple. But as we're seeing in the renewables market, that's changing. People are building the effectively sort of condominiums uh, where you're building a renewable project, and and you're letting out uh, a variety of space with different tenors with a lot of different people. And, and you have merchant exposure. And I think so bringing some level of sophistication to that is a, is a place that, that we can go. But then, you know, to get to your point about where uh, bank, bank debt has, has really underserved things, there are some things that, you know, uh, letters of credit, et cetera, that banks can do, but there are other facilities sort of around these projects that where you can be more creative and we can use our sub-investment grade arm, particularly to sort of, piece together with investment grade um, to have a total package. So, you know, I think <clears throat> we'll build on reputation, on flexibility, uh, on being quick uh, to the mark and and really try to sell the fact that we're not a black box so that you um, sponsors can deal with people who are either the decision makers themselves or one step removed from ultimately a body of decision makers. And that's always a risk for sponsors, right? As you, you've go, you march down the road, um, and something happens some other place in the world and a bank's lending paradigm has changed and you're now um, without, a, without a lender. So those are the types of things. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I'm, I'm very interested to hear about the uh, sort of sub-investment grade arm of Denim's sustainable infrastructure platform. And just talking about that, I mean, how would the debt platform approach risk management in more emergent sectors such as EV charging? Well, I think, uh, you know, EV charging today has not had a large lending market. And if you look back, I think there's a, it, it's, it's not just like toll roads, but I think the toll roads give a pretty good example to think about, which is that people who lent to greenfield toll roads, by and large, didn't have huge success. And so that lending market has turned into a brownfield 
uh, lending market where, in essence, you know, five years out, um, people have a pretty good view as to what the traffic is going to be, and then you can do a, you know, bring in sort of more traditional, long-tenured project finance. You know, the EV market has got not just the challenge of how many cars uh, are going to go on a certain road, and quite often those roads can be captive. Um, it's the only way to really get there. Um, but what sort of users you have, so, you know, and where, what other options do they have? Is it, you know, is it household where longer charge is fine? Is it highway where you need something that's quick charge? Is there any, you know, possibility of a concession? Are you doing this for a fleet where there is take or pay? So, you know, the devil is very much in the details on all of this. And, um, I, I think you can assume that we will take a, an approach that, is very much looking at this the way we'd look at it from an equity side, um, because that's in essence a lot of that risk in the first instance is equity-like risk, and and there won't be a lot of leverage I think on a lot of these until um, they each one individually sort of proves out its case over time. Um, now obviously there could be exceptions if there was a take or pay concession done or the like, but in general. You know, I think it's it's got to be a very very granular analysis, and you'll see Denim, I think, much more active on the equity side, um, building EV charging companies the way we've built renewable companies, and that's that's been our specialty is really building companies, not just being a simple, uh, well, it's not always simple, but not just being project equity, uh, but being uh, corporate equity um, to to build um, sort of best in class. Uh, Western standard um, companies throughout the world that uh, we're also putting in through the corporate entity, their project equity. So I think that's more the approach that you'll see us to uh, NEV charging. Um, not to say we won't lend to it, but I think in terms of dollars, there probably will be more dollars put in as equity than debt early on. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's very interesting. And I, I was looking at your debt platform. And I noticed that you had a sustainable infrastructure, responsible investment policy. And I just wondered what features you thought set that policy apart from other ESG investment policy frameworks? Well, um, I, I don't want to speak uh, too much about, about others, but I, I, I think we know um, what uh, we want to do. So let's start with that. So, um, and, and we have been doing ESG all over the world, and I think that's that's really critical. Um, in particular, this, the societal element is is very critical um, as you do some of the things in emerging markets. But but I I think it pertains in, in all markets, and so that's those are areas that, that we've really focused on, and and we've brought in you know some of the highest uh, certainly really good Gresby um, scores. If you're familiar, with that is that's the rating from some of the uh, it's an institution put together by some of the best, um, biggest uh, pension plans in the world. Um, and so it's that sort of worldwide experience, having done a lot of renewables, have put an all in about two and a half billion of equity, sponsor equity across in infrastructure generally. So that's the overall approach. Now, when you look at debt, um, we will be uh, using a screening tool um, to determine the sustainability objectives of, of every investment. And then we'll rely on the EU taxonomy to determine that. Um, and then a scoring methodology to assess a deal, not just upfront, but throughout its investment life cycle, where the goal is to um, improve the scores over the holding period. And 
you know, you can expect us to be probably a little bit more hands-on um, than uh, the traditional lending market has been to date. So, you know, a lot of these are, you know, we didn't make up these tools, but I think we're, you know, we're pretty good at applying them. Yes, and I, I noticed you mentioned earlier that uh, renewable energy investment has changed quite a lot and has become slightly more complicated over recent years. I mean, how would you say that equity investment in renewable energy has changed over the last decade, particularly as sectors such as onshore wind and solar have begun to mature? Well, it, they've, they've changed. They've changed a lot, really. Um, and and um, I, I would say, again, the, the point that I, I mentioned before about um, there being... Um, and there used to be a 20-year PPA and 17-year debt, and you were measuring this on the take-or-pay capability of one off-taker and the ability to prove out the technology and and uh, construct it and operate it within budget. And that was pretty much standard fare. That's increasingly rare today. So increasingly, you have... Um, you know, I called it a condo, or you can look at it, think of it as a ladder. So a, a variety of different tenors of um, of uh, PPAs and some, you know, and sometimes hedges. And I, I think about like what we've done in South Australia, I think um, is, is a really good example. So in South Australia, we uh, are building an entire complex. So it's got 212 megawatts of wind uh, today, 10 megawatts of battery, although that will be expanded pretty dramatically. But then we add on to that over 100 megawatts of, of gas-fired peaking capability. And so what that means is that in a market where it's very, very difficult to get any sort of lucrative nature of a long-dated PPA, we're able to command as much as a 30% premium uh, by virtue of offering firm power centered around that not only that 212 megawatts of wind, but another 150 plus megawatt expansion of that through the combination of the gas and the battery and the ex exceptional and the additional battery that we're putting in. And so that's a pretty complicated set of circumstances, right? In order because we we don't have one off taker, you have multiple off takers and they need firm supply and they're willing to pay more for firm supply. Uh, in a market where it's sort of a free-for-all um, in, in terms of um, getting ultimately access to the to the customer. Um, and so your retailers are trying to get the best deals they can possibly get to have secure supply, which now we're offering them so that they can offer um, the best terms possible to win customers. And and so I think that's a, you know, that sort of hybrid generation. Um, that's the sort of the epitome of it all, right? I mean, <clears throat> you, you could, you know, and we see that, you know, getting more and more broad. So we right now have wind projects in Brazil where we're going to be building large scale solar right next door. And the two, you know, map together pretty well. And you can see that we would be adding batteries to that over time. So those are changes in the nature of the projects. But one of the things that that has done where people who don't get into that, where they're really looking for, um, you know, more simplified renewables is they've become a little bit more like Denim started and continues to be, which is build the companies themselves um, and not just the assets themselves. And what that enables us as a, as a you know, private equity slash infrastructure investor who've got capital gains as a big part of our return strategy, it enables us to um, sell an ongoing enterprise that has proven that it can take assets from being on paper, 
to um, producing electrons and, and revenues. Um, and so we'll get value for operational, operational projects, construction uh, stage projects, and then at least late stage pipeline with PPAs, if not more, and then perhaps even something for a team um, if they're part of that. And we see more and more people have sort of gravitated to, uh, toward that space. It's not, it's not always the easiest space um, because <laughs> dealing with management teams, um, you know, requires a lot of um, hands-on work. You don't, you're never a blank check. You know, we're very, you have to be very, very actively engaged uh, with them. If I learn something new at a board uh, meeting with any of our management teams, that's kind of a, not a good thing um, because we're, we're, you know, with them all the way. And so our backgrounds predominantly were as developers. You know, we did develop, construct, operate um, projects in our previous life before we came here. And so, it, it, you know, that's why we did it early on is because we felt that there was a value dislocation there. Um, and uh, I think people are starting to gravitate more towards that. But I think in some cases, it's hard for pure, purely financial players um, to, to uh, navigate those waters. Thanks, Scott. And uh, just moving away from renewable energy now, I, I know that Denham Capital does invest actively in the mining sector. And so I just wondered, given the rise of green finance in mining, is there scope to classify certain types of mining as inherently green, or should mining always be considered in terms of ESG risk mitigation? You know, it's funny. I was uh, I spoke on a panel. Uh, I think it was um, Super Returns uh, very recently, uh, and asked that question about renewables. You know, and the question was because you're doing renewables, is it automatically get a pass on ESG? And the answer is no. Um, it's it's how how you do it. So something like 50% of the raw materials that go into solar comes from the Xinjiang uh, uh, province in China. And so you've got issues of whether there's forced labor going on there, just to you know, bring things to a head. So um, getting into your supply chain is, is really, really important. And of course, that's important uh, across fashion, it's across uh, consumer goods. It's more and more becoming a question for everybody, uh, and there are companies that are coming up that are, you know, developing uh, AI and um, and human interactivity to sort of gauge what people's claims are. And so that's a, you know a really big growing field um, today. So how does that pertain to mining? Just because you're mining something that's required for energy transition doesn't mean you automatically get a pass. Um, and that's really important for the guys on our mining team that they are um, doing everything to the utmost with respect to um, the environment. Uh, obviously governance goes without um, saying anywhere, anywhere you go, but the societal impacts. And again, as I sort of alluded to earlier on, most people who've tripped up on ESG, they've tripped up on the S, absolutely have tripped up on the S where they they've taken a tick box approach, done the bare minimum, to sort of incorporate themselves in um, their local uh, societal areas. And that comes back to haunt people quite a bit. And you've seen a lot of that across the board in mining um, <clears throat> where you know our mining group has paid very, very strong particular attention to all the sort of societal influences around them, tried to bring them on board or won't do a deal if, 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 it's, if it can't be done for one reason or the other. And so to, Having that as a as a really key focus is important. I mean, we have a 
in the DRC, we've got um, certainly one of the biggest, if not ultimately the biggest tin mine in the world. And that was something that was being mined by artisanal miners, which is um, the equivalent of false sla uh, force, um, you know, modern slavery um, in many, in many cases. Um, and that's been turned into a world-class mine that has the backing of, of international institutions um, because it's got a, a proper workforce that are treated properly. It's the way it deals with its uh, environmental impacts is, is not just been subjected to um, environmental uh, impacts uh, uh, reports and the like, but it, you know, it's been effectuated. Um, and <clears throat> there has been um, an inclusive approach to all affected communities. So that that is an approach that mining has to take because it, I think your question sort of um, assumes correctly that the energy transition requires so much more mining that isn't being done today for a lot of metals. And, you know, to be honest, most of the, the sort of low hanging fruit of mines, they've been mined already. And so you're talking about more difficult mining um, and in many cases, you know, bringing up to four the need to be exceptionally ESG observant uh, when you're doing it. So, so I think there'll be some fits and starts as that goes, but um, 10, 15 years from now, if not before, I don't know that the mining industry will have any people who are not really, you know, very, very ESG observant at that point. But as I said, nobody gets a free pass. Thanks, Scott. And it's certainly good to know that we're moving in that direction for mining. I'm just keeping the discussion on mining, actually. I noticed that Denim Capital is able to invest in various areas of the capital stack for mining projects. And I'm very interested as to what might motivate investment in these different areas. Well, I think I think that's mostly, I mean, you know, as a private equity uh, venture into mining, which is what our mining group uh, does, <laughs> um, it's capital gains focused. And so it's really generally an equity play. But as you're doing that, you know, there, you might be coming into entities where there's been a lot of money invested before you got there. And so that ability to sculpture your, your investment um, either, you know, as a, as a straight pref or maybe it's a, it's a debt warrants or other things uh, in order vis-a-vis -vis that that existing capital structure allow you to be very bespoke in terms of how you do it. And that's just the fact that, you know, most mines that you deal with, um, somebody has already invested a lot of money in it for it to be anywhere near actionable for you. Now, maybe you're buying it for, from them, or maybe you're, you're coming into it. Um, in some cases, we've come into it by buying into the public market and then, uh, you know, ultimately getting a management team in there to, to run it. So it's, it's been a very flexible, thoughtful approach. Yeah, of course. And just one final question, just thinking about, you know, we're coming up to COP26 and there is a lot of discussion at the moment about the world really needing to secure substantial ESG commitments um, in terms of the fight against global climate change, you know, about COP26 being the last big opportunity to do that. And in relation to that, do you think the debt and equity funds are actually going to come under increasing pressure to reduce their exposure to fossil fuels over the next 10 years or so? Yes. I mean, without a doubt. Um, I think in some cases <laughs> they, or, they already are. Um, so, um, you know, I, th I think you'll find a bifurcation where there are sort of value plays where um, 
investors will want to go in and, and, and play that market um, against a, an increasing uh, impetus uh, not to. And uh, that's not all. I mean, look, at I, I am a firm believer that we have a crisis on our hands right now with respect to global warming. I mean, we, we have a we absolutely have a crisis right now. What was a, you know a 50-year high temperature event uh, is now uh, happening sort of under uh, or over, I should say, one every every one times every 10 years. So that's I mean already happened. And you know recently the the president of the Maldives said, you know what the difference between one and a half degrees centigrade and two degrees centigrade is? The existence of the Maldives. I mean, so we have this on us, you know, right now, and I'm a firm believer of that. Um, but I do think that, you know, particularly as you look at natural gas and um, the intermittency of renewables, um, that you're going to find pinch points there the way that you're finding pinch, pinch points with respect to oil and gas now. So there's a, you know, the, the public shareholders of the, of the, you know, the big and the medium and the small uh, uh, EMP companies are penalizing um, those companies for putting money back into the ground. <clears throat> and I get that, um, but that does mean that um, as we are going through a long transition off of fossil fuels, that there will be tremendous price spikes. And you know, we're seeing a little bit of that now. There are other reasons as well, but we're certainly seeing a bit of that now. And I think the same thing will happen with natural gas. And I, I think about you know, countries across Africa, for example, uh, who, um, you know, you're trying to electrify hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. And they're, you know, all of Africa is, I think, responsible for maybe 3% of greenhouse emissions worldwide. So should they be penalized and not, you know, have a gas-fired uh, generation? I, I, would, I, would, I would say they shouldn't have coal, for sure. I, I don't, I think not only there should be no new coal, I think China and everybody else should be shutting down existing coal. Um, it, it, that's well past due, but I but I do think that um, we're going to end up with you know some pinch points for people because of uh, the lack of um, institutional willingness to differentiate some gas fired generation, and so the funds, the equity and debt funds going out there, do you really want to fight the fight and say, well, well, we'll do gas, but we'll only do it sometimes. So we'll do gas, but we'll give you an opt out, um, or is it easier just to say we're not going to do gas and raise money? Yes, of course. Oh, thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, actually, Scott, that uh, this is all we've got time for today. This has been a really fascinating discussion. But uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Thomas, and good luck to you. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And be sure to tune in again next week for more of your latest energy infrastructure and project finance news from Proxima. Mm -hmm.